chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. We've been studying the middle section of the book of Genesis, which covers chapters 12 through 36. As I've mentioned, this is a divinely inspired record of the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. Uh, but it is not just a record of history. It's not just something that we can take it or leave it. It is not something that's just there for those who might be interested in historical details. It is a record of our spiritual heritage. It's a record of our spiritual lineage, where our faith has come from. It is a record of even the progress of the gospel throughout the story of Scripture. It is tracing our spiritual roots all the way back to the beginning. After all, that's what Genesis is all about, right? Telling us where the world came from, where the gospel has come from, where our faith has come from. And so by looking at the lives of these patriarchs who lived some 4,000 years ago, we see something of how the world works. We learn crucial lessons about how to live in light of what God is doing. And most of all, and this is of the utmost importance, we learn about the character and the work of God. That is what we are meant to see above all else. These accounts are recorded for us by God's design and by God's intention to show us who God is, to help us see how God works, how God works in the world, how God has worked throughout history, and how God works even in our lives today. And so as we look at the life of Abram, as I've said before, what we need to see above all else is Abram's God. And what that God has done, what he is doing to move all history toward the salvation of his people. The goal is not to look at Abram and say, hey, look at Abram, be like Abram. The goal is to look at Abram's God. And then by looking at Abram's God, we learn how true faith and how true believers are to respond and how we are to live in light of our knowledge of God. So when we face challenging events and challenging circumstances in our life, there is actually something more important than the solution to the problem. That's what Jesus was doing in the life of that man in Mark chapter 9. That's what Jesus was doing, is going to do in the life of Abram. This is what Jesus does in every, in every life here as we navigate the hardships of life as we navigate the frustrations and the limitations that we face here. The solution to the problem is no big deal for God. That's, that's easy, but he's after something more. And we cry out like the Father did in Mark chapter 9, I believe, now help my unbelief. My belief is weak, but it's in you. Now help me navigate this. So as we come to Genesis 15, 
we see a direct conversation between God and Abram. A conversation that later in the chapter is going to result in the establishment of a covenant from God toward Abram. And that covenant is going to have significant gospel implications for all generations to follow. But our text for today is chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. And here, God speaks to Abram, and once again, he gives him a stunning promise. But that conversation between God and Abram reveals in these verses a particular struggle that is going on in Abram's heart. A struggle of faith, wrestling with his belief in God's promise and the distressing delay that God is showing in his fulfillment. And as we look at this, we see a reality that many of us are all too familiar with. I think you'll recognize it in Abram. Though we know and we believe that God's promises are great and that God is trustworthy, it can be very distressing and perplexing and frustrating and troubling to live in the in-between, right? Between the promise and its fulfillment. It can be hard to wait on God, right? Is that true for you or is that just me? It can be hard to wait on God, especially when His, his timing drags on longer than we expected. In the text before us, Genesis chapter 15, we learn that it is good to wait on God and that it is often in those times that God sees fit to meet our struggling faith with his divine assurance, where he teaches us a lesson about himself in the waiting before he delivers the fulfillment of his promise. So let's look at Genesis chapter 15. And let's look at verses 1 through 6 together. Follow along as I read. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is one of those Old Testament landmark turning point passages. The New Testament highlights it several times, as we'll see later. And it highlights it especially because of verse 6 and what it teaches us about righteousness by faith alone. But we need to notice that this is not the first time we find faith or righteousness in Scripture. This is not a new doctrine that is being introduced that wasn't here before. 
Hebrews chapter 11 helps us see that. Abel gave his offering by faith, Hebrews says. Enoch walked with God by faith. Noah was called a righteous man. It is crucial to understand that salvation and righteousness have always come through faith alone. And I would add, in Christ alone, by grace alone, from the very beginning. That is not a New Testament concept. That goes all the way back to the beginning. Salvation has always been the same. But what makes this passage special at this moment is not that it introduces a new doctrine that wasn't there before, but that it brings that doctrine into greater clarity, into greater detail, so that we understand it better now. And we'll have the Apostle Paul and we'll have James to thank for that helpful detail later. But with that in mind, what I want us to see first is the lesson on faith and assurance that comes from these six verses in Genesis 15. And then at the very end, I want us to look briefly at the application of faith and righteousness as we look at several New Testament passages that clarify. Okay, So we're going to spend most of our time looking at the lesson of faith and assurance in chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. And that's what I want us to notice now. The lesson of faith and assurance. Verse 1 begins with an important time reference. It says, after these things, that connects chapter 15 to chapter 14 and the events that happened there when Abram defeats this international coalition of armies led by Keterlamer, and then he returns and refuses the financial reward from the king of Sodom. I don't know how long the time gap was between chapters 14 and 15, but it must have been short enough that these events likely were still on Abram's mind when God speaks to him in chapter 15. And that brings us then to God's pronouncement in verse 1. God's pronouncement. We read this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, that's an unusual choice of words if God is just speaking to Abram in a private, personal manner. When we read in Scripture that the word of the Lord came to somebody, that's usually used to introduce the message of a prophet like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Hosea. It's a message that God intends to deliver to a messenger for the purpose of communicating it to God's people. And so right away, we have a hint, we have the suggestion that there is a significant relevance to what happens here that goes beyond just Abram. God speaks to Abram, and he gives him a promise that is going to reach beyond Abram all the way down through all the generations of human history. That's significant. And another unique detail along those lines is that this word came to Abram in a vision. There is a difference between a vision and a dream. Abram wasn't conked out at night uh, sleeping and God gives him this dream like he did to Joseph in Matthew. This is a vision. I think Abram's awake. I know that because 
The Lord tells him to walk outside and look up at the stars. He's interacting with him. There's something physical going on here. Now, whatever that looks like and how exactly uh, that, that circumstance played out, we're not exactly sure, but I want you to see what the focus is here. Notice what is highlighted. This is a vision, but it's all about the word of the Lord. I don't know what he saw. We're not told what he saw. But we're told what he heard. And that's the substance of the message. Abram did not need, in this particular moment, a personal or emotional impression. He did not need a sign or wonder. What did he need? He needed a word from Yahweh. And that, by the way, is always what anchors our faith and our assurance. This is a foundational principle. What God has revealed in his sufficient word about himself and about his ways. If you're struggling to make sense of what's going on in your life, I know you may not be able to answer every question, but where do we go first? To the word of the Lord. And notice what the first thing is that God says to Abram. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Now, it's normal in Scripture whenever someone has a vision of God to become very fearful. Anybody who encounters a glimpse of the glory of God becomes as a dead man, right? He's, he's fearful. He's shaking. He's concerned. Woe is me. I am undone. And so it's normal for a a vision like this or some encounter for God to begin by saying, fear not. And I have no doubt that's part of what's going on in Abram's case here. But I'm not sure that's all that is going on. When God tells Abram, fear not, and then assures him, I am your shield, it seems to indicate that there's something else God has in mind here too, and that there might be something else that is causing fear or consternation in the heart of Abram. An anxiety, an unsettledness, a, a nervousness about something that was already going on before this vision began. What could that be? Well, some have suggested that there's a lingering fear about the battle he just won. A fear that those armies are going to go home, lick their wounds, recover, and then come back and retaliate. That's a reasonable concern, wouldn't you say? So others have suggested that he's concerned about what he just gave up by refusing the king of Sodom's gift. Now, Abram wasn't all that attached to the things of this world, as we've already seen through chapters 12 through 14. But that gift would have been a substantial supply for himself, not just for himself, but for the people who were under his care. That was a big deal for him to refuse that. Maybe there's something of that there. Still others have suggested, and I think this is most consistent with what we've seen of Abram's character so far, they've suggested that Abram is concerned about the delay of God in fulfilling his promise. It's been quite some time since God made that promise in Genesis chapter 12. And Abram is probably wondering, Lord, I'm not getting any younger. When am I going to see some progress on this. 
I think any of those concerns are possible. Perhaps all of them are on his mind at this moment. I don't know. They're all a possible source of his fear, his anxiety and concern, his troubled mind, in addition to the fact that now he's having a vision where God is speaking to him. That certainly would have made it worse. But all this would explain then why God's words of comfort and assurance to him are, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. It's a comfort, isn't it? Isn't it a great comfort to know that in the midst of all of the troubles that this life might throw at us and all of the concerns that weigh on our minds on any given day, that in the midst of all of that, God is the great and mighty shield and rewarder of his people. You see, this is a truth and a promise from God but to, to Abram, but it's not limited to Abram. But to all who belong to the Lord. God is the protector of his people. He is the defender of his people. And throughout all of, li uh, all of life, God's intentions for his people are not for harm, but are for good. Do you believe that? We don't just see it here in Genesis 15. We see it in Psalm 3 when David testifies, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And humanly speaking, it looked that way. But then he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. You know the context of Psalm 3? It's a guy who's just witnessed a coup in the kingdom. He has been driven from his throne and out of his capital city by his own son. And he says, I lay down and slept. And I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Why? Because God is my shield. And therefore, in Psalm 46, God himself exhorts his people with these words. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still, God says, and know that it's all going to be okay in the end. We know that it will be okay in the end, but that's not what he says, is it? When the earth is crumbling, when the mountains are quaking, when the sea roars and foams and the very hosts of heaven themselves threaten to come crumbling down on our heads, what is it that God's people need to know above all? I am God. And then not only does God give the comforting assurance, I am your shield, but he also goes on to give a stirring promise. Your reward shall be very great. 
that word reward has the idea of wages, compensation, or even the idea of a return. Here, no doubt, is a promise that is made in light of everything that Abram has left behind. What has he left behind? His homeland, chapter 12. He gave up the promised land, if need be, to Lot in chapter 13. He gave up his security by going on to, to uh, fight with that coalition against all human odds. He gave up the reward that would have been a substantial provision for his own family and for those under his care. He gave up a lot in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And what God is reassuring him of in this very moment is not only am I your protector and your defender, but I am your rewarder. And that whatever you have lost or left behind to follow me and my word will be more than repaid to you. You may not see it in terms of earthly possessions, since he already had that. But God is drawing him back in to see his reward that exists and belongs to him in God himself. So God promises that what he will gain in following him will more than recompense him for what he has lost in this world. In fact, that phrase, very great, in the original language, has the idea of exceeding all expectations or going beyond all imagination. You, Abram, can't see the benefit you have gained by following me and obeying my word yet because you can't imagine what kind of a reward I'm going to give to you. You don't see it yet. But I promise you, it will be great. Abram has yet to see any real significant movement toward the fulfillment of what God had promised in chapter 12. But God's pronouncement here is meant to remind Abram that he is right to trust the Lord, that he is right to follow by faith. And his faith will pay unimaginable eternal dividends. It sounds like something Jesus taught, doesn't it? it? Sounds like a very similar principle to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he goes on to say, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, all those provisions on earth that you think you need, I will provide to you as is appropriate. And so Jesus says again in Mark chapter 10, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. What a powerful word from the Lord. Whatever you've left behind, do not fear. I am your shield. And your reward will be very great. That's a promise to Abram, and it's tied to the covenant that carries on to all who are children of Abraham. 
by faith. So we'll see in a few moments. What a powerful word of assurance from the Lord. And yet this word from the Lord triggers something in Abram. It brings a struggle to the surface. And so in verses 2 and 3, we move from God's pronouncement to Abram's complaint. We see Abram's complaint. It's as if the Lord is meaning to pull something out of Abram that he already knows is on his mind and heart, drawing this fear and this frustration to the surface so that he can address it. How kind of God, right? We don't have to sit on what is causing us to struggle. We don't have to sit and just hold it down and ignore it, right? God draws it out so he can address it and in addressing it, strengthen his faith. Now, this is the first time we see Abram speak to God. God has spoken to him, and Abram has obeyed, but here, Abram speaks. Abram talks back. And here's what he says in response to God's wonderful promise in verse 1. He says in verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. That was a typical custom. If you have no children of your own, one of your servants or somebody within your household can be the heir. That's what he's talking about. But then his sad question in verse 3 turns into a forceful complaint, almost an accusation. Look at what he says. Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. That's Abram lamenting what seems to be an unfulfilled promise and also trying to process what is a possible way out. What is the possible solution here? And I want us to know several things about what is going on as Abram makes this complaint. Notice, first of all, God is the one who drew it out. Abram didn't come and accuse God out of nowhere. God spoke to him, and he spoke to him in a way that seems to, to trigger this complaint within Abram so that he expresses it. It's almost like God is asking, setting him up. I know what's on your mind, Abram. Now tell me. You say, why would that be necessary? Parents, you understand. You know something's troubling your kids and they don't want to talk about it. What do you do? Tell me. Tell me. Okay, I promise nobody's getting in trouble today. Tell me. Let's talk. I feel like that's what God is doing here with Abram. Notice also that as Abram expresses his complaint to God, he maintains his reverence and respect. He doesn't use a casual, flippant name for God. He uses a twofold name for God. Lord God, Adonai Jehovah. <laughs> Lord God. And all along, we see a sense with Abram and his complaint that this isn't Abram shaking his fist in God and accusing him of injustice. This is Abram struggling. He believes God. He's not setting himself up as a judge over God. 
He just, he believes God, he trusts God, but his faith is struggling because he can't see a possible way God can come through on what he has said. And Abram has staked everything on what God has said. His faith is struggling, but even as it struggles, Abram demonstrates here an important principle that it is possible to express our questions and our doubts and our anxieties and our troubles to God honestly and earnestly and in a way that still reflects our godly trust and reverence. To question is not to lose faith. To struggle is not to lose faith. So notice also then the freedom that Abram has to complain to God. He just lets him have it. It's something we see in the Psalms quite often too. Lord, where are you? Seriously, Lord, you're just going to leave me hanging out here like this? Where are you? That's not saying, God, I don't believe you're here. It's, Lord, I, I know you. I know your character. This doesn't seem to add up. What am I missing? Where are you? Help. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's what Abram is doing here. And so he complains to God freely, what will you give me? He says, what kind of reward could you possibly give me since I still have no children? And here we get to the heart of what's really going on in Abram's soul, right? God had made that promise. I, I, I don't know exactly how long it's been since God made that promise in chapter 12. I think it's been at least a decade, possibly two. It's a long time to wait, especially for a man who's already up in years and God has promised him children. Abram is baffled by the delay. Lord, I believed you when you told me all those years ago that you would give me land and here I am. I believed you when you told me you would bless me and you have, but you also promised me offspring and descendants and that through them, we would be a blessing to the whole world. How can that be now, Lord? I am an old man. In fact, Paul says, as good as dead. Parents don't ever, or kids don't ever describe your parents that way. But that's, childbearing years are way behind. Lord, I want to believe your word, but I can't see a way out of any of this except that it's going to be passed on through Eliezer, my servant. Lord, I have believed you and followed you to this point. Have you forgotten your promise? Did you promise more than you can deliver? How can you possibly give me such a reward at this point in my life? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever asked those questions to the Lord? Lord, I want to believe you, but I can't see any way out of this. Lord, have you forgotten me? Have you promised more than you can deliver? That's the sense of what Abram is expressing to the Lord here. And he says it to his face. <laughs> what freedom, what grace. This is not the complaint of unbelief here. Unbelief would just dismiss the promise and say, all right, God, I gave you time, but you didn't come through. I'm finished with you and then move on to something else. That's not what Abram is doing here. This is the complaint of faith. 
He's holding on to the promises because he believes them. He trusts God, but he is confessing his own weakness and understanding how it can take place. Beloved, this is the kind of complaint that God invites. Are you thinking it? Then say it and let the Lord work with you. And we see this throughout Scripture. Job does it. Job does it on more than one occasion, doesn't he? You know the story of Job complaining to the Lord, and if only I had a hearing before him to tell him my case. King David also says it in Psalm 142, verses 1 and 2, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my troubles before him. And this is the spirit. This right here is the spirit that the Apostle Peter encourages in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. God cares. And he invites his people to reverently and honestly and openly pour out their hearts to him. That's what Abram does right here. And then in verses 4 and 5, God hears Abram's complaint. And he responds with a powerful gift of assurance. And so we've seen God's pronouncement. We've seen Abram's complaint. And now we see God's assurance in verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, that is Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. God speaks again to Abram and he deals very tenderly with him. He doesn't chastise him for asking the question or making the, com the complaint. How dare you speak to me that way? Don't you know who I am? How dare you question me? No. He reaffirms his earlier promise, his promise of descendants. No, Abram, stay on track. Hear what I am saying. Your very own son. And then he takes it to a whole new level. See, God had talked about descendants. But now he clarifies, not just somebody from your household, your son your own offspring. Abram, I know you can't see yet how this is going to work. But trust me, I know what I've said, and I intend to follow through. My promises to you will not be fulfilled in another family, but yours. You will have a son. And it's like the Lord is just saying, Abram, calm down. Trust me. I know what I have said is beyond your imagination but it is not beyond my power. And then in verse 5, God gives him a very instructive object lesson. We read, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. What is God doing there? I think there are several things that God is doing. For one thing, I think God is giving Abram an illustration to give him some sense of how great this promise is that he has made to him. Abram, you think it's impossible for you to have one son. 
Come out and look at the stars because your descendants are going to be like that. This promise is bigger. The promise you're struggling with right now, it's actually bigger than you think it is. So God seems to actually make it more impossible before he gives that reassurance. But I think there's something else that is going on here. I don't think God is just telling him you're going to have lots of descendants. I think that's part of it. But in pointing Abram's attention to the stars, I think God is intending to point his attention to the power behind the stars. Consider the stars, Abram. Count them. Go ahead, try. Count them if you are able. You can't, can you? Have you ever tried to count the stars? You can't even get close. You can't even see all of them. Count them, Abram, if you can. You can't. Now get this, Abram. I put them all there. I created them. I have them counted, and I know them all by name. God isn't just telling Abram that he's going to have lots of descendants. He is reassuring him of the certainty of his promise by pointing him to and reminding him about the power that is behind those stars, that holds them in place, that put them there, that sustains them. Yes, Abram, what I have promised you is impossible in human imagination. But so is creating the stars. And I handled that one pretty well. Trust me. Abram, it doesn't matter how impossible this thing is. I created the stars. I know them by name. I am holding them in their place. Rest assured, my promise is as good as done. I will uphold you. I will complete what I have begun in you. What an impact it would have on our spiritual stability and our rest and our comfort and our peace. Wouldn't it have such a great impact if we would just step outside from time to time and stop and take a deep breath and be still and look up? Consider the stars. Or if it's not nighttime, consider the sky. Why is it that the sky is blue and not red? And how encouraging is that? to us. How revitalizing to live under a blue sky, not a red one. And yet God uses red and orange and yellow to paint the sky in spectacular colors simply because he delights to. That's the kind of power we're talking about. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Knowledge of what? Of the kind of God who is upholding your life right here, right now. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. 
All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That has been God's point all along. His people are called to trust him and to follow his leading, not because they know all the answers or have every detail figured out, but because they trust in the sovereign God of heaven who created and upholds all things by the word of his power. What makes our faith strong is not our circumstances or our understanding. What makes our faith strong is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. And that is what God is calling us to. And when the object of our faith is settled, then God will shepherd us through the struggling of our faith. We hope and we trust because we know something of who God is. And that is all we really need. Well, I think Abram got the message because in verse 6, we see Abram's faith. And this is what we read. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is, God counted his faith to Abram as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, not because God had answered all of his questions. In fact, he hadn't answered his questions. He just reinforced the promise. Trust me, Abram, I know you can't see how it's going to happen. And I'm not even going to tell you, but I'm telling you, I'm God and I told you it's going to happen. So that's it. And Abram believes. He believes simply because of who made the promise. That is the strength of a believer's faith. Your stability is not your stability because I promised to do something in you. Your stability is not your stability because this church promises anything to you or because you are strong in and of yourself. Your stability and your joy and your hope in this life are anchored to God. And if God is the one who promised to do something in you, and he has, then he will complete it. He will finish what he has started. He has not promised you a comfortable earthly life but he has promised you that he will carry you all the way through because what he has begun will end in glory. And he will uphold you every step of the way. And he will give you wisdom in the decisions you have to make today and tomorrow. And he will give you patience in the frustrating circumstances you have to deal with today and tomorrow and throughout this week when your gaze is fixed on him. And you are not giving in to the idol of, Lord, just get me out of this. No, Lord, draw me close to yourself. Abram gets that. 
And that's why, even though he doesn't have an answer to his question, he believes God. And God counts that to him as righteous. Because his faith was settled in the sovereign, trustworthy God of heaven and earth. And on the basis of that faith, on that belief in the Lord, God counts it to him as righteousness. And this is the point that is picked up in the New Testament to teach the nature of saving faith and the Christian life. But this wasn't the moment of Abram's conversion. That happened back in chapter 12 when God called and Abram followed. But this is a clarifying moment. This is where his faith is defined and clarified. This is where we understand what it is that made Abram right with God. God didn't count Abram to be righteous because he left his home in Ur back in chapter 12. Nor did God count Abram to be righteous because he deferred to Lot in the choice of the land in chapter 13. God didn't count Abram to be righteous because he took a stand and won a battle in chapter 14. Just like God didn't count Abram righteous because of his covenant circumcision, which hadn't even been announced yet. No, none of that earned any bit of righteousness before God. But God counted Abram to be righteous simply because he, because he believed God and took him at his word. And all of those other things that Abram did were the display of the faith he already had. They were the outworking of his faith. The basis of his righteousness was his faith alone, and his behavior was the demonstration of that faith and righteousness. And that brings us now finally to consider very briefly the application of faith and righteousness. Talked about the lesson of faith and assurance. Now I want us to consider the application of faith and righteousness. And what I mean by that is that I want us to consider very briefly three key New Testament passages and what they teach about faith and righteousness on the basis of verse 6 right here. There are three passages that explain and apply Genesis 15, 6. Those three key passages are Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3, and James chapter 2. 4, 3, 2. Romans 4, Galatians 3, James 2. Two of these passages teach how faith and righteousness relate to our conversion and salvation. The other passage teaches how faith and righteousness direct how true believers live in the light of their salvation. Have I thoroughly confused you? Good. Maybe I'll clarify it as we go. I'm only going to mention these very briefly. That's the time we have. But I'd encourage you to go home and look and read these chapters fully and see what they teach us and how they enhance your understanding of faith and righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul explains Genesis 15, 6 to make the point that being reconciled to God, that being saved, is accomplished only by faith, apart from works of the law, apart from religious performance, or any other thing that we may do. In Romans chapter 4, he says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He's making this point 
to reinforce his thesis statement that he made back in uh, chapter 1 of Romans, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul looks to Abraham's faith to teach us that righteousness and eternal life and peace with God are achieved not by human effort or human performance, but by faith alone in Christ alone. It's basic understanding of what true salvation is, right? Then he goes on in Galatians chapter 3, and he makes the same point, and he emphasizes that this, this applies even beyond Abram and brings it into how the nations are blessed in, in, in Israel and in Abraham. And he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Know then that it is, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, the ones who are following in his faith. It's not performance-based. It's faith. It is belief that God is who He says He is and that God will do what He says He will do and then submitting my life to follow that and to trust Him alone. In other words, all the nations of the earth are blessed in Abram by exercising the faith that he exercised in his God. And that is how we become sons of Abram. Salvation blessing. The life of the gospel, righteousness, are to be found by faith alone in God alone. And so the gospel is the focal point of God's call to Abraham. And it is a gospel call that extends beyond Abraham to all the nations, to you and to me today. But then we come to James chapter 2. And James writes about Genesis 15, 6, and as he does, he almost seems to contradict what Paul just said. We read in James chapter 2, verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? We haven't gotten to that part of Genesis yet, but that's coming. He says in verse 22, You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, which is it? Faith alone or not faith alone? This is where Martin Luther struggled with the book of James, wanting it out of the canon because he thinks James is teaching something heretical here, but he isn't. You have to understand, it is not a contradiction but James is not talking about the same aspect of justification that Paul is. Paul explains all of this in terms of how to be saved. James explains it in terms of how that plays out in the believer's life. And the point is this. We are justified. We are saved. We are made right with God by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. It changes the one that it saves. It transforms him. It is a faith that works. And I know that to a lot of evangelical Christians today, that sounds like legalism. But it isn't. It's what the Bible says. 
James issues an important clarification on what true faith really is and how it shows up in the Christian's life. A faith that does not change how we live is a delusion. A faith that remains only in our heads and does not touch our hearts and our hands and our feet is not a true faith. The examples in Scripture are consistent on this matter from start to finish. Those who truly believe God act on that faith. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works that we may do. But that salvation always makes the believer into a new creation and leads him to live a new life, oriented toward God and obedience and service to him. No, we don't do that perfectly, do we? Neither did Abram. Neither did Abel and Enoch and Noah. Neither did David or Job, or any of the other people that we've considered this morning. But this faith transforms. And a transformed life, transformed by faith, causes us to grow spiritually and to progress in grace. To grow in the knowledge and the imitation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that brings us very simply to a, a conclusion. A conclusion where we need to consider two simple questions. One having to do with our salvation. One having to do with our life of faith. And these questions were presented not originally by me, but by a commentator. So I'm going to just read his words because I think he's clear on it and he's very helpful. He says this. Have you rested your faith on God the Son? Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? That is the first question. Are you trusting your works or Christ? Now, if you answer, I am trusting Christ alone, then the second question is, has your faith produced works? Is your faith real enough that it has changed your life? You are saved by faith alone, he says. But if it is true faith, it is faith that is not alone, but a faith that works. Salvation is in no other name but Jesus. Have you believed and trusted him alone for your salvation? And if you say you have, has your life changed? May this landmark text dominate your understanding of God's revelation about faith and righteousness because it comes from his word. Let's pray together.